Welcome to Healthcare Experience Matters. This podcast is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation. And with today's episode, we're teaming with PRC. This podcast is dedicated to transforming the healthcare experience so that every person can receive and deliver the best care. Today, joined by Deborah Zastaki, coach here at the Healthcare Experience Foundation. We're going to be talking about leadership's role in helping to reduce employee turnover. And before we start talking about leadership, reducing turnover, all that stuff, why don't you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your professional background? Great. Well, I'm happy to be here, Casey. And I've had over 40 years of healthcare experience, and my roles have been varied. I began as a clinical nurse and went through various areas of patient care and then developed more of a leadership tract and working as a unit manager and then to be a director of education, training, and research in a hospital, and then moving through more of a traditional managerial rank to be the the director of nursing, a vice president of patient care services, chief operating officer, and also being a president of my hospital for 11 years. And I was the first nurse to become president of a hospital in New Jersey. And then eventually we joined a system that I was a healthcare executive there. I've also enjoyed a great many um, opportunities and have done a lot of adjunct faculty work at the graduate level for nursing leadership and uh, public health administration. And I have co-authored several books on home care, written chapters and books, written articles, and most recently, I'm doing more on continuing education of modules for staff and others, and then also the more work I'm doing more with um, health and wellness coaching, business coaching, leadership coaching. And really, the best part of my day had always been when I was in the acute care side, and I did much in the non-acute care side too, but in the acute care side, it was always being with staff and patients. I love that. Really an awesome background. And we are so excited to dive into this conversation, especially with all your experience in the leadership realm. So let's just start it off by you telling me a little bit about your thoughts on the importance of leading by example. Leading by example is one of the key behaviors that makes a difference for the culture of the organization to reflect the values. But the key on that is that you need to be able to do it consistently. You need to be seen by the staff and you need to have conversation with the staff because that develops the beginning of relationships with staff. It also helps develop trust And for all of us, we each have a way of interpreting what somebody has communicated as a standard of behavior, but it doesn't seem to interpret the same way for each person, which is just normal, the way we do things. It's like the telephone game. I tell you one thing and you think you hear something else, that kind of thing. And by being out there demonstrating this behavior and helping people see it, it clarifies for people, oh, this is what it's supposed to look like. 
if I'm really demonstrating the key behaviors. And I also think that it helps people when they're with you and they see this, it helps them to see that you have an opportunity for mentoring and coaching. So they can ask you questions, you can clarify things, you can immediately recognize behavior that is consistent with what you're looking for. And all of these things start that relationship building, which is pivotal for helping to have staff want to remain in your organization. Really well said. So now I'm just going to ask pretty pretty loaded question, but we'll have you break it down for us. Um, In your eyes, what does effective leadership look like to you in healthcare today? To me, healthcare is uh, experiencing, obviously, a, a very dynamic and turbulent time. And we're asking people to do many different roles, much more so than they were used to before. And it's almost as though it's a fire hose of activity coming in. And certainly the COVID pandemic did a big, big role in helping people to suddenly say, oh my goodness, what we are used to and what's the norm is now very different. And you think just about the example of telehealth, you know, introducing that type of experience as a way of suddenly going from, oh, we might offer some service to, my goodness, the only way we're going to communicate and keep our people well is to be able to be out there, tele, you know, telecommuting with them, telehealthing them, that type of thing. So I think for the most part, people were feeling very, very stressed. And we as just humans are social creatures. We are creatures who need belonging. And if you think about it in our early hunter-gatherer phases, you wouldn't survive unless you were with your tribe of nomads or whoever you were with. When people were feeling very stressed, the thing that started coming together was organizations that were able to create a sense of belonging creating a sense that each person was cared for and cared about, putting a lot of things in place in my old organization. They had an entire initiative on helping have like a psychological, emotional uh, refueling area where staff could just step away, get into a place, relax, calm down, have some psychosocial support, that type of thing. So the most important thing, I think, for people to remember in this day and age when we're asking people to make so many changes so quickly is that we have to help people feel like they're a member of a really important team. We care about others. We care about them. And we belong together. Some of that is typically described in a lot of the literature about organizational commitment. And when people feel like there's an emotional connection, and then there is a sense of ownership by the organization that they want the employee, the staff person to feel supported, that begins to translate to, oh, the the staff person is eager and willing to go beyond what you would normally expect. And 
for me, what we're going to be doing going forward is a great deal more of agility and adaptability. That's going to be the key for leadership leadership success and the key for uh, organizations to be successful. Because what we know before is not going to make it now. And now we see how rapidly change can occur. And we have to be able to have the staff trust us, be willing to work with us, and then be able to grow with us and make changes quickly. I have uh, a a term that we used uh, previously. It was called G-E-P-O, and it's called good enough to push on. And the theme there is that our our leadership and our environment is certainly one that we want to have a plan and we want to have a goal and we know where we want to achieve uh, at a certain point. But because of the unpredictability of life, we can't always get there in a clear, linear manner. So we have to have the goal and we have to have a starting point. But what we really need to understand is we may have a little zigging and zagging as we go through this process. It is not failure. It is we've started this phase. We've learned something that informs our decision and we make a modification still going to the ultimate goal. And then you go into the next phase of your journey and you might need to make another phase This is where we start building resilience in our leadership group. We build resilience in our employees. We have that need to continue to meet, just meet the needs as they come up, but that we continue to uh, grow with those. And this is where it leads to my other big point about leadership is that staff need to be able to trust you enough to bring up information that you may not be eager to hear. And when I completed my certificate at the Wharton School of Business in University of Pennsylvania, the term that was used is called seducing the leader. And seducing the leader means you either send out a message to people that you're not interested in hearing things. Don't tell me anything that's contrary to what I've planned because we have the perfect plan. Or you say, you know what? I and this was how I used the language in my prior positions. I love hearing good things. Who doesn't? Tell me your success stories, your prouds, whatever. But I also need to hear those things that are not working well because this ties into the GEPO. If something is not working well, whether it's patient safety, patient processes, you know, organizational issues, we need to know that so we can address it and continue to move on. So leadership being out there, encouraging people to provide feedback, encouraging people to do their best, encouraging people to offer new ideas, being willing to take the risk to speak out, having the opportunities to participate in different areas of hospital practices and procedures. Many organizations 
have opportunities either through staff meetings or things such as um, shared governance, where people can come together, be part of the initiative of creating new things that affect the work environment and policies and procedures. Uh, people need to have proper information. You know, we have to, we call it cascade learning at times, but we have to get the information out to people, make sure they understand it, and then provide opportunities where we can have that dialogue with people so they understand because our staff are our ambassadors. If they understand what we're trying to accomplish and how we're doing it, they can be partners in this whole process. And I think sometimes people don't get to be partners in, in that. And I think to managing conflict, we always know there's going to be conflict in any organization. So how do we manage that? How do we teach people how to effectively work on these things? And for the most part, rewarding and recognizing people, providing good coaching and not micromanaging. Most uh, managers sometimes thinks it, think it's helpful to like, well, let me get just right in here and I'll do it. And that is very disempowering for staff. You need to set the expectation, provide them with the proper resources and tools, and then just be there for coaching along the way. If you start interfering at all times, it really makes the employees put up their hands and say, why bother? No one's going to do it as good as this person. And why should I be wasting my time? Those kind of elements create the environment of trust and organizational commitment. And what that leads to is better retention of staff, lower levels of absenteeism and tardiness, improved job satisfaction, higher quality of care, and willingness to contribute to the organization. So it's that whole that environment that we're creating. It's not just one behavior. It's the culmination of all the behaviors. You want to give us some examples that last piece that you mentioned might fall into that category where someone is, I guess you might call that micromanaging, but what are some examples of a leader having good intentions, but the action resulting in something that's actually counterproductive? I think that's excellent uh, thought because, as I was saying before, even with plans, sometimes the staff know so well that the new initiative is not workable. And I'm, I don't mean like, oh, we don't want to change. I mean, they really know uh, the process is not well understood and it's going to be fraught with errors. And it's a, probably a good intended change for the organization. But if the leader doesn't allow for that feedback in the beginning before you roll it out, and also allowing for a feedback during the phases of implementation, you could have a really good idea that falls woefully short. And then the staff just say, it's the flavor of the month. This month we had strawberry, next month it's going to be peach. You know, it's whatever it is, just go along with it. And we'll just figure out how to do workarounds around these stupid administrative edicts. 
And so you can begin to see that it starts creating a chasm. And even if something really great comes out, the people are like, "Ugh, why bother? You know, they're, they're not going to do it. And so the leaders themselves, in fairness, start kind of, I, I guess you would say, not having as much confidence in their own things. And sometimes they try to roll out another one and another one to try to compensate for what the original plan was lacking. And in reality, if they would have spoken with staff and gotten input from the beginning, they would have had a much more successful outcome right from the get-go. In what ways is the cost of turnover actually quantifiable in terms of loss of productivity, impact on morale, things of that nature? The cost of turnover is really profound. If you think about it, the resigning person leaving, now somebody has to fill the gap in that workload. And so what does that mean? Somebody else has to have expanded responsibilities, so taking on more. It may be that you have to bring in a temporary person. You may have to transfer somebody from another area. Uh, You may be adjusting shifts, roles, and responsibilities. And then what happens then is that the manager may have to even redesign some processes and roles just to be able to get the work done. So imagine how distracting that is for somebody who knows how to do their job and works well with somebody. Distraction leads to errors, And it leads to confusion in some sense about what are we modifying now this week because so-and-so is gone. So everybody sometimes doesn't even get into the same model of how to do it. So then you think how frustrating that is for a staff person. So they already now have the loss of the person that they've with, whether they loved the person or not is irrelevant. It's there's a loss to our group, our community, our belonging group, then it's like I'm resentful probably to the management because now I've got to adjust my schedule, my workloads, my responsibilities. And then, which is even a little more concerning, is that they have to now go step back in terms of their performing levels. They have to step back and say, So who is this person who's really coming to us? What are their skill levels? Um, Can I trust them? Do I have to watch them doing something? Do I have to coach and mentor them? So everything that was knowable and comfortable and allowed you and your team to perform well now has to take steps back. And it's almost as though you're coming together as a new group, you're forming. And so everything requires extra thinking, uh, a lot more emotional, like, oh, I have to be able to tell somebody something again. And it takes a big hit on morale. And when morale goes down, absenteeism goes up, tardiness goes up, and errors occur. So what happens then is you probably have to have more overtime, more temporary staff because you're filling the role of the person who's gone, but now other people are calling out. So now you've got to fill them in. 
And that is very, very quantifiable. Imagine now you've got advertising and recruiting that has to go on, then you've got to send somebody through all the human resources aspects of employee physicals, et cetera. Then the employee has to go through orientation, which is certainly time you're paying for them, but it's not where they were originally doing their job. And then they've got to come on to wherever the job area is. And depending on the level of uh, specificity and technicality of the job, they may then have to have a prolonged orientation, maybe a week, maybe two months to be able to get into that. All of that is non-productive time, so to speak. And I pulled up some notes for this, but the average cost of turnover for a bedside RN ranges from $28,000 to $51,700. So that equates to hospitals losing $3.6 to $6.5 million each year and Again, I immediately think of how could that money be so much better spent in patient care and staff services. So for every change in RN turnover, and most hospitals do measure RN turnover, it costs the hospital $270,000 for every percentage that there is a change in increasing or decreasing uh, turnover. So these things are very substantial impacts on organizations. In addition to all of the other issues that I've just described for you, it, it can really hurt the performance of an organization. Truly alarming numbers there. Um, you left me with a quote last time we had met that I really liked and it really stuck with me. And I want to bring it up now and just have you reflect a little bit on it about how it kind of ties into everything else we've talked about today. And that quote was, people don't leave jobs, they leave managers. That is true. The uh, In most cases, I, I have to say that. So the culmination of this quote really reflects on some of the prior discussion we've just had. People want to be in an environment where they're, they're known, they're cared about, and they feel like they belong, a sense of belonging. And if the manager doesn't care about that, doesn't effectively do it, or in fairness is in is of the mindset, like I'm hiring you to do the job. It's your problem. You know, you have to adjust to whatever's happening here. The person then can begin to feel somewhat marginalized and not cared about. And I can share a personal experience. I did something in one of my positions and I knew the manager, well, she was the director of nursing at the time certainly thought I did a very good job, but she minimized this one program that I developed, which was technically game-changing in the uh, organization. And she was like, well, glad you got that project done. And I am now so imagine this was not ugly feedback. This was just acknowledging I got the project done. And do you know, it really just went right to my heart. And I thought, she doesn't really appreciate 
what I and this project mean to the organization. And that made me have pause. And so you can see it's something as simple. Words are important. Language is important. And I, uh, I, the only reason I hung together with that organization is that I had a very strong belonging with the rest of my group. So I felt like, you know, we were cohesive. And then I did have a meeting with her. And I shared, I said, I felt pretty minimalized and discounted for that major contribution. And do you know what? She was having a major crisis that day. Her head wasn't really attending to me. And the next thing you know, she's like, oh, my goodness. And then she went to really describe at that moment how she really felt about it and how appreciative she was about that. And do you know what? After that, I was even more loyal to her and more willing to put out extra effort. So it's that relationship. It's that trust. And, you know, sometimes giving somebody an extra opportunity to communicate their understanding and appreciation of what happens. This has been an incredible conversation. And before we close it out here, I just want to give you one last opportunity. If there was anything else you wanted to add that we didn't get to. I would just add that, you know, we have to be personally aware of our roles as leader, but also personally aware of how we present to people when we're out and about walking around, interacting, that type of thing. And also right now, we have a very um, diverse generational and cultural workforce, and it would be very important to understand any of those implications for the area that you're responsible with so that you're having multiple tools in your toolbox to to be able to support multi-generational and multicultural staff. You've been listening to Healthcare Experience Matters. I want to thank our guest today, Deborah Zestaki. Thank you very, very much. And I appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Healthcare Experience Matters. Healthcare Experience Matters is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation with today's episode teaming with PRC. To learn more, visit healthcareexperience.org. That's healthcareexperience.org.